for 13, 14 months now, I believe. I've had a whole lot of metal in my mouth. It's really uncomfortable. Um, I'm, I can't wait to get the metal out of my mouth. When I first got them put on, the lady gave me this stuff called gushy goo. Um, and, and you push it out, it mixes together, and then wherever there are sharp areas, you're supposed to put it on there. And she said, you know, be careful, don't, don't overuse this, because you need to develop calluses on your lips. And I said, do you know, hear what you're saying? <laughs> Why would anyone ever want calluses on their lips inside? But I know now, because all of these little metal brackets, they're constantly rubbing, and every time you go in, like once a month, they adjust the wire, and so it moves everything, and everywhere that you started developing calluses, it shifts just a little bit, and so you get brand new sores, and this is what I thought to myself. We can put a man on the moon and we cannot figure out how to make a metal bracket that's not like a chainsaw in your mouth. <laughs> I mean, literally, we take people and we put them in spaceships and we blast off and go to the moon and we build a space station. But we can't build a little metal bracket that's not sharp. Why is that? Everybody with braces, are you with me? Wow, there must not be many of you. I'm, I'm glad, for your sakes. Well. I've got these things, and the reason they're here is because my whole bite was off. Um, bad enough that my upper, uh, mount, my upper bite was over my lower so much that the teeth were kind of hitting on the gums, and it was starting to cause issues. So I did not get braces because of vanity reasons, although I am very vain. Wasn't for that, though. It was purely for medical reasons. But what's happening is over time, it's shifting. My bite is becoming what it's supposed to become. Um, and, and 14 months ago, it was going the opposite direction. It was getting worse. And in fact, that's what my dentist had said before. And he said, look, you don't need to get, get this done right now, but you should get this done because it's only going to get worse. I was on a trajectory. The trajectory has changed. It's going a different direction now. But it's taken a lot of time and a lot of individual little decisions to get from that point to the point we're at now. Today, as we end this series on the genealogy of Matthew, which we're not gonna get all the way through, but a year and a half from now, we're going to, the whole thing. But right now, I wanna talk about trajectory. Where is your life going? Decision by decision. If you start right now and you were to look a year, two years, five years into the future, where is it heading based on what's happening right now? Would you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1, and we are in... Verse 8, our goal when we started this was to just go person by person through the genealogy. 
Because everything that I've seen on the genealogy, it looks at a bigger picture, which is very significant. But I can't find much on just going through these people. So we've tried, but there are way too many of them to do in three weeks. Today, we're going to hit groups. Grandfather, father, and son. We're going to see these groupings together. We'll start here. Verse 8. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. I'm going to look at those three guys to start off. And this question of trajectory, let me tell you a little about these three guys. Asaph. Asaph is a good king. In the Old Testament, you'll see his name is Asa. Um, he does a lot of good stuff. He is a guy whose heart is true to the Lord. However, there are two things that he does that are of concern, and you'll see the trajectory as we go through the other kings. Right, he comes to, to power around 910 BC. He'll reign for 40 years. Now, he's there for a long time. But two things that he does. One, he does not get rid of the high places. He leaves the places on the hills, the places outside the city, where people are doing pagan worship. He leaves those. And he feels threatened by the northern kingdom. Remember, this is Judah. They're in the south. He feels threatened by the northern kingdom, and he'll make an alliance with Assyria for protection. Now, his son then comes to reign 40 years later. His son will follow in the footsteps of his father. He'll be good overall. Okay? Jehoshaphat will be a good ruler. However, he also will not get rid of the high places. He'll leave them. But on top of that, Assyria has become stronger now, and he's afraid of Assyria, and so he'll make an alliance with the north. But at that point, the northern kingdom is weak. He'll make an alliance protecting from Assyria. Then his son, Joram, comes to power. And Joram will turn from a heart after God to wickedness. And part of it is because of this. He will take after the king of the north. He will like so much what the kings of the north are doing that he will follow them instead of Yahweh. Now, here's the trajectory. Two good kings doing good things in Judah. But just a few minor decisions that seem okay at the time, ultimately will end up at something. Right, there's a lot of reform that happens with Asa, but he does leave a little bit out there. He lets the worship on the outskirts, which is not right in front of him, he lets that continue in a bad way. And instead of trusting Yahweh, he decides to go and trust Assyria, which sets a tone for his son, who says, well, now I'm afraid of this. I'm going to go after a different king and make an alliance with them. I'm not turning evil, as that king is evil. I'm not turning to foreign gods, as Assyria is. But it is setting a trajectory that you see culminate in, their, in his son and in grandson, where he will turn and follow those wicked kings. What trajectory are you on? What decisions are you making right now that they actually may be okay at this point? You're not really seeing a huge negative to it, but what will it be in a month, three months, a year, 
Let me ask, have you ever said this to yourself? How did I get here? Have you ever said to yourself, how did I end up drinking this much, this often? How did I end up being this person who is so mean to people, I don't even like myself sometimes? How did I get here? There was a trajectory. There were decisions that were being made. And at the time, they may have been small. Hey, if you were to look back at Asa and say, he's doing really good things for the Lord, but he left a little bit over here that he didn't deal with, and that little bit starts coming back, what decisions are you making right now? Let's ask it practically. What are your eating and your exercise habits? They're going to mean something. At some point, right now, you may be just fine. But at some point, they're going to impact you. And you may wonder down the road, how did I get so out of shape? Well, look back over the last couple of years. Something led you there. What are you doing with your time, with your money? All of those things are leading somewhere. There was a mathematician back in the 1950s and 60s named Edward Lorenz. And some of you know who he is. A movie was made after what he's credited for, The Butterfly Effect. Um, the movie apparently was awful, at least according to Rotten Tomatoes. I didn't see it, but they said it was terrible. But despite the movie, here's the general idea behind The Butterfly Effect. Right, he is a mathematician and meteorologist. And as computers become available, he decides to create a model to predict weather. So he creates this model using math and his meteorolog meteorological knowledge. So that's a big word. Can't even say it. He uses that to create this model. Now, because the computers are much cruder than we have now, he has to limit the factors that go in. But he's trying to account for temperature, pressure, wind, all of these things. One day in 1961, he runs one of the tests. Now, this is predicting weather over months. And he decides he wants to revisit the results, so he's going to run the test again. But on the second try, because it's, he just kind of wants to see the end of it, he takes the printout from the middle of this, however long it was, he takes the middle numbers and he plugs those in, because he just wants to see the last part, and he runs it again. And he is surprised to find that the outcome is hugely different. And at first, his thought is the computer must have messed up, because he put the same numbers in that were there. They should have given you the same result at the end. Well, he checks the computer. It is fine. He then realizes the numbers on the paper, on the printout, are three digits. The numbers the computer has are six. So even though he put the numbers off the paper in, they were three digits off, which you may think that's really big. I mean, 100 compared to 100,000, except no. What he put in was 0 .506. What was in the computer is 0 .506127. See how small that difference is? I mean, it's, it's a fraction of a difference. 
and yet it turned the outcome hugely different. And in 1972, he'll write a paper. Can the wings of a butterfly in Brazil cause a tornado in Texas? And that's where it comes from, the butterfly effect. The idea that this system is so complex and it has a trajectory, that everything's impacting everything else, and even the possibility that the wings of a butterfly could impact weather patterns around the world. What's your trajectory? Because even the smallest things that we are doing, they are having an impact. They are helping to shift a course. Trey mentioned bowling. How many of you bowl? Raise a hand. Let's see some bowlers. Wow, we need more bowlers. All right, a couple of you bowl. We went bowling recently for my son's birthday, and I'm, I'm working with my daughter on bowling. Because when she throws this ball down the lane, if this is the lane, and I really wanted a bowling ball this morning, I was going to go down the lane, and my wife told me it was a bad idea. <laughs> so I didn't. But picture this as your lane. And my daughter, they put those things up so the gutter blocks, and she's throwing the ball, and it keeps doing this, just going like this and hitting over there. And I said, honey, look at your hand. In bowling, where you point your hand, the ball's going to go that direction. Here's the thing. You've got the ball. You're coming down the lane. You're bowling. If you stop and look at where your hand is, that's where the ball's going. It's not going where you want it to go or where you even think it's going. Or it may even be going where your eyes are at. It's going where the release of that ball is directing it. The same thing is true for us. Where are you releasing your life? What choices, what decisions are you making right now? Because it's setting a trajectory for life. Even if it's as small as the wings of a butterfly. Now here's the second part of the butterfly effect. And this is where, um, if, if you read about it, you will see that as people are using this, um, they, and I didn't want to be one that was, that was uh, said of me that I also misused the analogy. So I'm going to give you the other side of it. He did show that this small effect could make a huge impact down the road. But part of it was also that we can't predict it. That there's too many variables. Because the wings of the butterfly could also be the thing that stops the tornado. And there's a whole bunch of wings doing it. And so what we know from it is that we can't control the outcome completely. I will say that's true right now, just off the bat. I don't care what you do to your trajectory. There are other people that are impacting it, and you can't control them. There is sin in your life and in my life that is impacting it, that at times we're giving ourselves over to. It's not as simple as just saying as long as I make all the right decisions, I'll end up at the right place. However, there are better decisions that can be made that have a better chance of leading the direction we want to go. What are those decisions? Let's look at a couple more kings. Keep going with me. Joram, the father of Uzziah, and by the way, there's a jump here. Matthew doesn't make it, but if you go look at the list of kings, Matthew does not include every single king. 
He's got 14 generations, 14 generations. He's keeping something going here. He skips some kings. Um, but it's not as if he doesn't know it. It's part of what he's doing. Uh, Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. All right, these four guys. Uzziah starts off, he's a good king and administrator. Right, he will actually expand the borders of Judah. He will conquer others. Right, he, will, he will follow in the footsteps of his fathers when they were good. But something happens to him down the road where he gets too caught up in his own abilities as a king. He begins to think of himself as too much. And it leads him to do something he won't recover from. He will go into the temple and he will burn the incense as only the priests were supposed to do. And God will strike Uzziah with leprosy. And he will have to spend the rest of his life in a leper's house, not ruling. Now his son will start earlier because of what happens to his father. And he will have to rule knowing that his father had a very successful kingdom. But his religious life took a turn as he decided, I'm going to step into the temple and just do what I think needs to be done because I am all that. And so his son will not follow in that path. He will do the good things. He will rule as his father does in the administrative role. But he will not make his way into the temple to do what his dad did. However, his son will come along and his son will make it far worse than his grandfather ever did. His son will fall in love with Assyria. He will think that Assyria is just the greatest thing since sliced bread that they didn't have. And he will go so far as to create an altar in the Assyrian style and replace the one that's in the temple with it. Really bad stuff. A kingdom that is really successful and throughout his reign, Isaiah will tell him, do not trust Assyria. Don't follow after them. Trust in Yahweh. And he will say, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to trust Assyria. And guess what happens? This is the problem with sin sometimes. He is not harassed in the same way as his neighbors are because he's trusting in the one with power, at least the one on earth with power. And so Isaiah is telling him, this is a bad thing. But he's not seeing it. What he's seeing is, yeah, but I'm not harassed like everybody else. And in fact, Assyria is so strong in keeping us safe Let's just make our religion more like theirs. Let's build an altar like them and put it in the temple. And so then Hezekiah comes along, his son. And Hezekiah is like his grandfather, not his father. And he will come in and say, we cannot do this. And he will immediately start reforms. He'll reform the temple. He will call the nation of Judah to come for the Passover for the first time in years. But religiously, the kingdom has gone so far down that they just kind of laugh at him. And there's a very small Passover celebration that first time. But he'll reform things. 
And he will say to the king of Assyria, I'm no longer falling. We're rebelling against you. Because Isaiah has told him, like he told his father, don't trust Assyria. But he listens. And he rebels against Assyria. One of his advisors comes and says, don't do that. Assyria has kept us safe. Stay with it. But again, Hezekiah listens to Isaiah. He deposes that advisor and says, no, we are going. We're going to stay with Yahweh, not with Assyria. At the end of his life, he finally makes one mistake that his great-great-grandfather did. To the king of Babylon, he begins to show his riches. He begins to show how, look at me, look how powerful I am. And Isaiah comes along and says, stop doing that, and he repents. Now, how does all of this come together, and what does it have to do with trajectory? That son in the middle, Jotham, He is identified with a characteristic. He ordered his life after the Lord. And throughout these generations, you watch the way in which these kings are ordering their life. What are they setting at the center? Sometimes it's themselves. Sometimes it's a foreign power. Assyria, that's how I'm gonna make my decisions. I'm gonna gonna trust them for safety, I'm going to make things look like they look like they want them to look like. You get to Hezekiah, no, no, no. Yahweh is going to be center. But what about Assyria? No, I'm not going to choose that. I'm going to choose this. I'm going to base the kingdom on trusting him. When Babylon is in some power and he says, wait, no, I want to be like Babylon. No, you don't. Okay, you're right. I've screwed up. I'm going to turn to Yahweh. I'm going to order my life around Yahweh. How are you ordering your life? Because it comes to the, I mean, that is where your trajectory is going from. How are you ordering? And this is a bigger question than just the decisions. I'm not asking you what your decisions are. I'm asking you why you're making them. It's not about where you are going, but why are you going that direction? What is it that you have centered yourself on? Let's ask a couple of very simple, practical questions. What are you doing with your time? But why? Why are you spending your time doing that, whatever it is? What are you investing your energy in, your life into? But then why? Why are you doing that? What are you doing with your money? It's a, one question is just what are you doing with it? And you may notice, well, I'm spending it here, here, and here. But here's the question. Why? Are you spending it there? What are you ordering your life around? Because that's leading to your decisions and ultimately it's giving you your trajectory. What are you ordering your life around? Let me give you two examples of people that have ordered their life around something. And I want to show you what it might look like. One is Katie Ulender the um, skeleton Olympic athlete in the Winter Olympics. Um, this is her life, right? Ulander's breakfast usually consists of eight egg whites with spinach and cheese, oatmeal, and yogurt. It's a little more than I eat. She gives herself at least a half an hour to digest her breakfast before starting her training. She packs on carbs before workout or just afterwards, and during the day, she keeps the ratio between carbs and protein lower. It's mostly about balance, she said. 
I can't not eat carbs. That would take energy when I won't feel good. I need energy to compete. She eats about every two to three hours. She'll often have a salad with chicken for lunch, but she also loves burgers. She just has to find the right time to have them. When she's really trying to put on weight, she'll have cottage cheese with protein powder at night. Try that for a snack sometime. Pull out your cottage cheese, dump some protein powder in there. During the summer, remember, Winter Olympics. During the summer, she has a packed schedule. From 9.30 to 12.30, she's running sprints. She has a break for lunch before hitting the weight room from 3 to 5.30. Afterwards, she tends to her body by stretching and spending time in cold tubs. By 7, she's eating dinner. By 8, she's studying the tracks and looking at past races to learn from them. Quote from her, I am completely focused on training and sport. I did everything I could do to know, when I, uh, to know that when I walk into the stadium, I'm prepared. Her life is centered on something. All her decisions, how she spends her time, how she eats, how she sleeps, it's all centered on this. That's the why for her. The trajectory? Competition in the Olympics. Let me give you another one, a different kind of thing. A mom wrote this book. Her daughter at four years old was diagnosed with stage four neuroblastoma. She writes this book. The book is called When Your Child Has Cancer. When your child has cancer, you know your way around the hospital backwards and forwards. When your child has cancer, you learn how to get a good night's sleep on a hospital cot. When your child has cancer, you remember to grab an extra pair of underwear and a toothbrush when you take your child to the ER, just in case you have to stay for a couple of days. When your child has cancer, you pack a small ice chest full of chemotherapy and medications whenever you go on vacation with your child. When your child has cancer, you feel an instant bond with any mother of a bald-headed child. When your child has cancer, you love seeing your child's sweet smile. When your child has cancer, you start to shed tears of joy when you see your child laughing and being silly with her sisters. When your child has cancer, you appreciate family gatherings and holidays more than you ever have in the past. When your child has cancer, you spend more time in the hospital than in a bed and breakfast, more time in an infusion room than a bookstore, and you feel like you just got beat up for no apparent reason. When your child has cancer, you consume a lot of juice boxes, string cheese, crackers, and pudding cups. When your child has cancer, you dress your bald child in pink and still have someone ask, how old is he? When your child has cancer, your heart constantly longs for heaven where there will be no more pain or tears. When your child has cancer, everything in your life is dependent on it. It is the center. You make all your decisions. Everything changes. The way you use your time, the way you see your friends, the way you look for eternity, it all centers on your child having cancer. Those are pictures of what it looks like to center your life on something. And here's the thing. 
This is what I know is true of me. Maybe you'll relate to it. I tend to center my life on things in emergencies and urgencies. Those two things. When something is an emergency, I can center everything on it. When something is an urgency, I can center everything on it. But outside of those two, this is what I think is happening to me. My life is deciding what I do. It's not conscious. I'm not consciously going, I want to get here, I want to follow my God like this, so all the decisions I make are somehow going to center around that. Rather, I'm just going through life. And I'm wondering at the end of the day, why didn't this get done? I'm wondering at the end of a week, why did I not pray like I wanted to? I'm wondering at the end of the year, why has there not been change in my life like I wanted there to be change in my life? Because my life is controlling me, except in those instances. What are you centering your life on? Because it is moving you towards something. It's part of that trajectory. It's the starting point. What are you making? Why are you making certain decisions? That's the depth of the question. What are you centering your life on? And what is that trajectory leading to? I want to end by briefly talking about the four women that are mentioned in the genealogy. Because they show us something about God's trajectory, about what God was centering his plan on. If you look at the four women that are mentioned outside of Mary, up to that point, look at the four women that are mentioned. Here's what is true about them. They are part of the marginalized. In two significant ways. Number one, they are women in this time period. And by very nature, they are marginalized. They are not given the same rights or respect as men are. And number two, they are all most likely Gentiles. Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, <laughs> just blanked on, 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 on one of them. Could you just name the rest of them for me, Heather, so I can get them all out there? Um, Bathsheba, they are all Gentiles. Because, now, now think about this. Go all the way back to Abraham. The promise to Abraham, I will bless all nations through you. Not just Israel, not just the ones chosen, all peoples. Go into Exodus. I will make you a priesthood to the nations. You are to bring me to them. Not to isolate yourself as if you are the special ones and I only care about you. But the people who don't know me and then just go into the ministry of Jesus. The way that he is treating prostitutes, Samaritans, people on the outskirts, people that are rejected. He is welcoming them. The way that women play a role in his ministry. 
which is very high up. Because God's trajectory all along from the beginning was to bring everybody in. That was his heart. Even Jesus, when he finishes reading the Isaiah scroll, and he's with all of these Jews, and then he talks about the fact that God rescued two Gentiles, and they get really ticked off, and they want to throw him off a cliff. Because it's always been there, even built into the genealogy of the Savior. Not an afterthought. Matthew did not have to mention those women. They are not significant for the father-son, father-son, father-son genealogy. They are significant for God's plan and God's trajectory from the beginning. Does your trajectory, does the ordering of your life center on him and what he thinks is most important? May 9th is a glorious day. I, 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 can almost, I can barely even tell you. Oh, March 9th, I'm sorry. My wife just, it's not May. May's like really far away. May would be awful. Um, I, no, this is March, March 9th. Thank you, honey. Um, March 9th is the day that's really glorious because I'm getting my braces off. March 9th, braces are coming off. And I have told some people that, and you know what they've said to me? Wow, you have not had those very long, have you? They're not in your mouth. Yes, it's been a long, long time. I am so sick of sitting at meals with people and feeling like half of my meal is still in my mouth when I'm done. And you're trying to figure out, how do I get this out of my teeth? Because I know they can see it, They either look at it or you pick it in front of them, one or the other, and they're both bad. I cannot wait to get these things off. But the reason that they're coming off is because they've done their job, and I don't mean this in a prideful way. I did mine. I didn't do it because I'm real disciplined. I did it because I want these stupid things off my mouth. But I did everything they told me I needed to do. What to eat, the rubber bands, all of it. I didn't want a single broken bracket because it would make like two extra days or something to have to have these things on. I knew if the rubber bands weren't on like they were supposed to be, it wouldn't shift like that. And he was gonna tell me more months and more months. I wanted it done. And praise the Lord, it's gonna be done like two and a half weeks earlier than it was supposed to be. Here's the point. If you order your life after the living God, if you order your life after Christ as his disciple, it will set the right trajectory for life. And you will find 14 months down the road that there is change. There is realignment It was not too late for my jaws, thank you, thank the Lord. I mean, I could actually adjust them and realign them. It is never too late to realign your life, decision by decision, in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that 
you never give up on us. That it's not too late. Maybe we've made some really poor decisions. Maybe we really haven't been thinking through our decisions. But it is not too late to begin to make them in you. To center our lives more fully on you. That our trajectory may be where you want it to go. Lord, help us to take stock of who we are and the decisions we are making that we might more fully embrace following the Lord Jesus Christ consciously in all aspects of who we are. For his honor and glory, amen.